Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. Who are we going to learn about today, Karen? Today we learn about World War II inventor Clayton Hutton. He was a spy, and this is his story. Before we begin, I want to go over a few things. First off, I want to thank all of you who take the time to listen, and I want to apologize that we've been sporadic lately in getting shows out. I have been dealing with an illness that hit me pretty hard, and I'm struggling to get back on schedule. Speaking of schedules, we're changing our release day to Saturday so that we can have Sabotage Saturday. If we happen to miss a week, rest assured that there will be an episode out the following Saturday. Also, for new listeners, we wanted to share a bit about the show. We are not historians, and we aren't always that mature either. In fact, sometimes we can get a bit silly. My co-host would probably say I'm the one who does that. Are you? I'm not going to say it. No. <laughs> I'm going to let the, the people decide. Okay, so you're going to try. the wise choice. You, yes. You're going to sound like you're being all sage. See, this is reverse psychology. I. Hmm. Anyway, we both love history, but we're just regular people who want to shed light on those in the past who did their work in the shadows. And we want to have a little fun while we do it. We do the best that we can with research, but if we happen to get something wrong, just shoot us an email and let us know. And please extend a little grace because we're learning as we go. And especially this episode, extend a little grace because I'm rolling with a pretty good fever today. So (laughs) now on to Mr. Hutton. Christopher Clayton Hutton, who went by Clayton, was born in Birmingham, England, to Christopher and Edith Hutton. Clayton's dad was a brass manufacturer, and his uncle ran a local sawmill and a timber business, so Clayton was raised around practical trades. But practical trades didn't really do it for young Clayton. He was much more interested in performance, stagecraft, and the arts. He did always enjoy the natural sciences, though, and he won prizes for his projects in botany. Although Clayton wasn't really known for his affinity for team sports, he was involved in the gymnastics program at King Edward's School in Birmingham. After graduation, Clayton went on to work at his uncle's sawmill, making five shillings a week. So, you know, as a young man, he was rolling in it. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty big money back then. (laughs) Clayton was a fun-loving young man with a sense of drama who greatly enjoyed the work of the magicians who were beginning their rise to fame at the time. And he would use his money to watch their shows. One night, especially impressed by a performance by Houdini, Clayton wandered backstage to see the magician after the show. He wanted to propose a challenge. You see, during the performance, Houdini had announced that he would grant a hundred pounds to anyone who could produce a wooden box that he was unable to escape from. Clayton, being very confident and resourceful, sometimes a little overconfident, he was sure that he could outwit the escape artist. 
To his surprise, the famous magician accepted his challenge. The formal proposition read as follows. Challenge to Houdini. The Birmingham Empire, April 29, 1913. Dear Sir, when you were previously in Birmingham, you escaped from a packing case. As the case was delivered two days ahead, you had ample time to tamper with it. In order to eliminate such a possibility, will you accept the challenge permitting us to bring to the Empire timber, battens, two-and-a-half-inch nails, and in view of the audience construct a strong, heavy box, and defy you to escape without demolishing the same. Yours truly, Edward Withers, Benjamin Withers, Fred Lees, and Clayton Hutton. Now, unbeknownst to them, Clayton had added his buddies from the sawmill to the challenge. I wonder if he was planning on giving them the money, too. <laughs> I bet not. But, the reply. The above challenge has been accepted by Houdini for the second house, Friday night, May 2nd, at the Birmingham Empire, under the condition that the box is not airtight. Later, Houdini also requested to meet the carpenter. Clayton didn't see this as a problematic request, since the box was to be constructed in full view of an audience. The night of the performance, the box was assembled on stage. Twenty people were chosen at random to inspect the box, all finding it worthy. Houdini was handcuffed, put into a potato sack, the sack was sealed, and then he was put into the box and the box was nailed down. The whole shebang was heavily roped, put on a low trolley, and wheeled into a small tent upstage. Frenzied orchestra music played for the next 10 to 15 minutes, finally swelling to a dramatic crescendo. Suddenly, the tent curtains were pushed aside, and there was the triumphant Houdini, his skin glistening with perspiration as he bathed in the adoration of his audience. See, it's like I'm there, Karen. You wrote this. I just feel like I'm just right there. Yeah, you can smell the sweat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the box was still intact and roped up as it was prior to the escape. It just occurred to me why he would not want that airtight. But go ahead. Uh, are you are you going to share that or? Well, go ahead and tell him how Houdini okay. got out. Clayton was befuddled. He couldn't figure out how the escapologist had done it. Then he learned it was much more practical means than the illusion insinuated. When Houdini met the carpenter earlier in the week, he had offered him three pounds to not nail the box properly in two small places. Houdini was able to apply pressure to that area, popping it open, and then easily nailing back the nail two nail spots while the music was at its peak. So Clayton... If it would have been airtight, mm -hmm. it would have shown where Houdini did that. Oh, yeah. Makes sense. So Clayton did not win the 100 pounds. Houdini did give him a watch that in front of the audience, Houdini said, was fine silver, which Clayton found out later was just white metal and was of no monetary value. But he did learn a valuable lesson. Clayton learned that escape and evasion can happen in plain sight. It's just a matter of taking advantage of what is afforded to you. 
The clever young man took this life lesson with him as he began to face the challenges of adulthood. Although he enjoyed showmanship and would have enjoyed making a career out of it, his mother, as mothers are prone to do, discouraged him from that type of life. And instead, he took on a series of odd jobs, including Get a real job, <laughs> including a journalism reporter, which he took to like a fish in water. Then World War One service called and Clayton answered. He liked the idea of being a pilot, but his forceful and dramatic personality caused his application to be denied. He was also known to try to reinvent the wheel, and he wasn't afraid of challenging the system. And this was not a trait appreciated in the military. Especially in a pilot, you know? Like, they kind of have to follow certain rules. Yeah, when you're flying a plane... I mean, they weren't that complicated back then, but I would imagine there were a few things you had to right. you stick to. You, could, you couldn't be reinventing the wheel up there. Yeah. Um, he did end up serving in the North Cumberland Fusiliers, and he ended his World War I career as a captain of a training reserve. He finally achieved his pilot goal on his own, and he gained a British flying certificate in 1917, and he did eventually make it into the RAF and he served a short time in Salonika. After the war, Clayton Hutton again drifted towards journalism and claimed to work at the Daily Chronicle for some, for some time. During this work, he found himself in Berlin. Then, at the dawn of World War II, Christopher Clayton Hutton found his true calling. He interviewed for the War Department for a position in MI9, which at the time he didn't even really know what he was interviewing for. He ended up in a department with four other men and their supervisor, Norman Crockett. Surprisingly, during the interview, Crockett was most impressed with the Houdini story. So it's kind of interesting as to why. That is interesting. Well, I mean, well, it was what MI9 was for. That's why Crockett liked that particular story. So, go ahead. Well, the entire section was initially organized into two parts. MI9A, who dealt specifically with enemy prisoners of war, and MI9B, who focused on British POWs. MI9A eventually evolved into MI19 who handled the intelligence that came from both groups. Now, upon that separation, the MI-9B was reorganized into separate sections and staffed accordingly. And the sections of the new MI-9 were D, W, X, Y, Z. Section D included training, which evolved into the official intelligence school in 1942. W was responsible for the interrogation of returning escapers and evaders and creating reports based on the information gained. This area also distributed what became the monthly war diary entry. See, that makes sense to me. W, the who was there, what were you doing, what did you see, you know, the W. Okay. The who, what, when, where, why. Yeah, yeah. Glad that makes sense to you. Uh-huh. X did the planning and execution of escapes. This included escape and evasion materials. See, X for escape. Escape. See? See where they're going here? Why, Karen? Why? <laughs> Why? Why was in charge of codes and secret communication within the camps? See, I got yeah. you there. And 
Z was in charge of production and supply of escape tools, including prototypes and experimentation. See, now that one, that one made sense too, because it was like, no, don't do look, it. Don't do it. Don't look, look, stop. Look, Z, see what I have done see, here? I could, see what I have created? There's see? two okay. more one star reviews. Ping, ping. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Clayton's specific job was to create and disseminate evasion and escape devices. So, which one was he in? I'm sure he was in Z. He was. He was in Z. Not long after Clayton started working for MI9, he met Johnny Evans, who also worked for the organization. Now, Johnny had been through the ringer himself, and as he lectured the students in training, one of those students being Clayton Hutton, the students were somewhat in awe. Johnny had been an intelligence officer on the Western Front in World War I, and then as a major in the new Royal Air Force, he was shot down over German lines over the Somme and captured as a prisoner of war. Yes, and for Evans, much like my new puppy, Bo, staying <laughs> in captivity just was not an option. <laughs> he escaped, but was recaptured, much like my puppy, Bo. And <laughs> after that, he was sent to the infamous Fort Nine at Ingolstadt, north of Nuremberg. Now, his eventual escape is described in his book, The Escaping Club, which was published in 1921. That's a book that you would know what it was going to be about by the title. Mm. There's no mystery there. Okay. Well, you can't judge a book by its cover, Karen. Unlo except when you can. Except when you can. Any anyway, Evans definitely inspired Clayton and instilled in him the three essentials for an effective escape. Maps, a compass, and a food source. Hutton later added a safe water source to the list. Hutton, charged with the Z section, tried to come up with items that focused on that list. Despite his blunt estimations of things and his propensity to challenge others, he was well-liked, even if others considered him a bit mad, and he was dubbed cluddy by his coworkers. Kind of, you know, nutty, huddy. Nutty, cluddy. Turned, turned into cluddy, yeah. <laughs> First, Hutton began to consider options for maps. Cluddy met with cartographer John Bartholomew, who supplied maps of Germany, France, Poland, Italy, Austria, Switzerland, Belgium, Holland, and the Balkans. Thankfully, the company also supplied copyrights to the map data in support of the war effort. So once that business was taken care of, Cluddy tried to think of the perfect medium Paper was just not feasible for so many reasons. It was loud, it was clunky to transport, and could easily be ruined by the elements. He decided that printing the maps on silk would be pretty effective. It mitigated the problems paper caused and had the added benefit of being able, it could maintain its integrity despite frequent folding and unfolding. Cluddy's first attempts weren't fully successful because running ink was sometimes a problem, but he discovered that if he added pectin to the ink, that solved the problem. He also created a man-made fiber tissue. This tissue paper was made from mulberry leaves, and it had an onion skin texture, but it had extreme durability. Most maps were printed double-sided to increase their usefulness. Maps 
along with other escape equipment, were always carried by air crews. By the end of the war, over 400,000 escape maps had been printed. Hutton's silk maps were not the first use of a silk as a map medium, though. Right. In fact, the oldest surviving silk map in the world is a military map, known as the Garrison Map, which was excavated in 1973 from the Han Dynasty Tomb Number 3 from the Hunan Province in China. Now get this, Karen. The Garrison Map has been dated to the middle of the 2nd century B.C. Wow, so it held up pretty well. Yeah, that's impressive. So although Cluddy didn't do it first, he did improve on the idea, and he got many more maps in the hands of those that needed them, saving many lives. The next object on Clayton Hutton's list was the compass. What he did here was pretty dang brilliant. It was. And remember, his experience with Houdini made him fascinated with the idea of escape. And at first he thought that the two most important tools for escape were a map and a compass. And he came up with compasses, I mean, just out of everything. Hmm. Anything metal, he would magnetize and make a compass. But his specialty was coming up with very, very small hidden ones. And he would come up with some so small that they could be hidden in a button. And this might favorite thing that he did because it just shows him thinking about the possibilities he put a compass into an officer's button into the uniform buttons and then screwed it closed but he reverse threaded it so if you got captured and they wanted to check hey could that be something you know something in there and try to unscrew it they would actually be tightening it I just thought that was brilliant. I mean, that kind of foresight. It is. Yeah, that's amazing. He also came up with the idea of magnetizing safety razors to make them a compass. So the G in Gillette, it will point north. So that made an automatic compass. Yeah. That's crazy. Now, I am just touching on some of his most impressive ideas. One, for pilots to avoid detection if they ended up behind enemy lines... It was very important that they look like civilians. Well, one dead giveaway was their boots. So he designed this boot. It was half leather, half cloth. It had a large heel, and built into the boot was a small knife. They also had food in the heel, didn't they? Yes. Wasn't that part of it? Yeah. So when they needed the knife, when needed, they would take out the knife, cut off that top legging part of the boot from the ankle up, and make them into regular shoes it's crazy and then cut the heel off into a regular heel and retrieve maps compasses food the pills that clean the water yeah the little tablets for cleaning water it's crazy i mean it was just here's another brilliant one blankets that had a pattern to make civilian clothes drawn on them with invisible ink you got the blanket wet and the pattern appeared And then you just cut it out and made yourself a shirt or tuxedo or dress or ball (laughs) gown. I don't know. From the blanket, it depends on whatever blanket you got. But, I mean, that's – we could go on for two hours about things this guy invented. But he was was really focused on escape and evasion. And those were some of the most impressive things that he came up with. 
Right. It's really what I think is is so cool about it is that he kind of stuck to those things to to the the maps, compasses and um, food sources and then just different ingenious ways to achieve those goals. Like he kind of it's, it's amazing he could be so creative, but keep the boundary of his creativity like. That. Well, he sometimes went outside the lines because he tried well, he to do did. those little radio kits and they had to reel him back in saying, don't do oh, that. I, yeah, he did a lot of a lot of crazy things, but it's it's really amazing. People who think like that usually are all over the place. And he really did stay within the lines more than most people who would do that. And I just think it's. Yeah, they have miniature cameras that were already developed, but he figured right. out how to make one make a cigarette lighter into a miniature camera oh i mean there was all kinds of of things but it was kind of after um the intelligence had had expanded past those first few things but it was just it's amazing how he could take one category and expand it into all the different ideas he came up with but but again his big thing was escape and evasion that's right he really was amazing one of the things that hutton did was he he took his main inventions, the, the map and the compass, along with a few other things to create these little escape kits. And then the question was how to get the kits into the hands of prisoners. Well, after the Geneva Convention allowed for prisoners to receive packages, MI9 and all the sections under them worked together to create these fictitious charities to funnel contraband into camps. Some of the charities included the Licensed Victuallers Sports Association, the Prisoners Leisure Hour Fund, the Ladies Knitting Circle, and the Jigsaw Puzzle Club. Each fake organization had addresses, letterhead, and other information that added to their credibility. MI9 obtained the license to the game Monopoly, and they utilized a small version of the game to hide Hutton-designed escape kits and other contraband into the game. And that's now we're gonna ki- what's amazing Go to me on this mm-hmm. is how kind of loose they became in these POW camps when they were just barbaric and inhumane everywhere else. Right. It just shows how deep their racism went, how they viewed some people as human and others as not. Yeah, but in the POW camps, it's like they weren't careful at all. It's like, yeah, just bring that in. German Shepherd, oh, rifle, that's fine. Just don't cause any (laughs) problems. Well, a little bit more than that. But now we're going to kind of take a little bit of a a side trip here because I just thought this was pretty interesting. Um, It's a two for one, really. We're going to tell you two history stories. (laughs) <laughs> We're going to tell you the history of Monopoly here because it's kind of interesting. It, it's it's had many variations, but the first one came from Elizabeth Maggie. And around 1900, she read Henry George's classic Progress and Poverty. And he wrote that in 1879. Have you read that, Karen? I have not, but it makes me think of Sense and Sensibility. It's actually, it's not long and it's very, very good i think have you really read it yes i mean are you i just... actually have mm, okay wow that's insulting <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a, con- you it's fake a condemnation a lot of things, no it's saying. a condemnation on capitalism so you know i've read it oh yeah you uh, read it yeah 
She agreed with his conviction that the equal, and I'm using his quote here, the equal right of all men to use the land is as clear as their equal right to breathe air. It is a right proclaimed by the fact of their existence. So in a nutshell, he believed that land should be heavily taxed and the tax proceeds used to benefit everyone. And in doing so, you would eliminate much of the poverty that he had witnessed traveling across the U.S. So she made a game called the Landlord's Game. Her game had two sets of rules that she wrote for playing it. And I'm not really against capitalism, but, you know, I like to read a lot of books about that. Now, under her two sets of rules, one was the prosperity set of rules. And every player gained each time someone acquired a new property. <laughs> Why are you laughing, Karen? <laughs> what a boring game. It's like a participation trophy game. Anyway, go ahead. Well, this reflected George's policy of taxing the value of land. And the game was won. Listen to this utopia, Karen. The game was won by everyone. When the player who had started out with the least money had doubled it. Hmm. Now, under the monopolist set of rules, <laughs> players got ahead by acquiring properties in any way they could. If someone got up to go to the bathroom, you could steal their properties, steal their money. I mean, this game really had no rules whatsoever. And collecting rent... <laughs> Well, it was like the regular Monopoly. You acquire property, <laughs> collected rent from all those who landed there, and whoever managed to bankrupt everyone emerged. Instead of landlord, it was called slumlord. <laughs> yeah, slumlord. <laughs> if you bankrupted everyone, you were the sole winner, and you got to taunt everyone. <laughs> so... <laughs> Eventually, Parker Brothers gave her $500 for the patent of this game. I wonder if she gave that to everybody around her. I don't know. They ditched the commie rules, that whole <laughs> prosperity thing, and they used the capitalist rules, the dog-eat-dog -dog rules. See, we need to use this whole story for our other podcast, which is a political podcast, yeah. which we would expound our various um, opinions on. But, but I'm just picturing my kids playing the like... The prosperity one? Uh, <laughs> I don't want to like, give him $3. No, Why? That, no. So that's the game that I would buy my kids because like I used to buy them games that would make them talk about their feelings. And they were like, Mom, this isn't a game. Like, I, <laughs> I want to beat someone. Yes. If I'm not beating someone, then what? why am I doing this? <laughs> so I'm just picturing like hours because you know how long a game of Monopoly takes. Imagine playing Monopoly with no like joy of being a winner. It's just like we all win. Yay. <laughs> I used to like later. to play Monopoly and just buy one, try to get one property, one color property all the time, just to mess up the whole game. Well, right. And you're also obsessive compulsive. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't care if I had hotels or anything else. Right. And how you come you can't build hotels up. on the railroads? <laughs> See, you're just like this guy. You just want to change the rules. Anyway. Well, back to the story, the Germans thought that if the prisoners that were in the camps could stay occupied, that they would be less trouble. So they didn't really mind them playing games. 
When it came to Monopoly, the prisoners knew that it was a special edition if the free parking space had a red dot on it. They got so good at this that the maps were specific to the general area of the camp. Of the estimated 35,000 Allied POWs who successfully escaped, it is thought that one-third were aided in their flight by the rigged Monopoly sets. <laughs> How would you like to be <laughs> the guy in charge of writing those rules? Well, this month we only had 900 prisoners escape. Like, dude, do you have a fence? I mean, what are you guys doing there? They well, got all really... tied up in their own games of Monopoly. You guys are sneaking <laughs> under the wire. Well, I think what's really interesting about this is this whole, the whole MI9 section kind of, we utilized a lot of that intelligence it, with. American intelligence and um, a lot of the things that we talked about in the Vice Admiral Stockdale episode um, employed a lot of the techniques that came from this section. Yeah, the Vietnamese were a little bit better at guarding than the Germans were. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, it's it's really interesting to see the evolution of that and how it was it's used now, you know. After the war, Cluddy wanted to add his voice to the chorus of those who had worked in intelligence, and they were beginning to get their stories published. He encountered a lot of pushback, though. His written works were accused of violating the Official Secrets Act, which is pretty intense. Those people um, took that seriously, and if you remember in one of the episodes that I we did. I can't remember which. (laughs) You did. I I did, and you kind of (laughs) accompanied. You co-starred it. (laughs) Um, that couple had been married for like 40, 50 years and they met working, Mm -hmm. you know, in MI9 in an office and never, ever talked about what they did during the war because of the secrets act. Like 40 years. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, Clayton wasn't one to back down from a challenge and he took on all the naysayers. He provided ample documentation that he wasn't divulging any secrets that hadn't already been put out into the public and he pointed out that many of the inventions he discussed were even on display at Buckingham Palace. Yeah. The queen so. has one of my compasses right on her crown. <laughs> it's important to remember, although Cluddy was somewhat revered in MI9 and his supervisor understood his mind and the way he worked, in general, despite his amazing accomplishments, Clayton Hutton was not a man who was going to be a sycophant in order to win friends in high places. Throughout his entire life, he challenged those in authority over him, and he always tried to improve systems that no one really wanted changed. Cluddy's obvious disdain for administration created many obstacles as he tried to get his written accounts published. Finally, his autobiography, which this cracks me up, the name of his book, Official Secrets was published in 1960. I think he was sticking it to those that said he, he violated it to the, the, the man there. Official Secrets Act. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I'm just going to go full on with yeah. this. Yeah. Um, it was published in 1960. And then another book was also published under a pen name. Shortly after the publications, Cluddy retired to Devon, still planning to work on inventions for the private sector. Sadly, he suffered a sudden brain hemorrhage and passed away in 1965. Christopher William Clayton Hutton was a curious student, a reader, an observer, 
a maverick, a journalist, an inventor, a genius, an author, and he was a spy. We would like to thank everyone who takes the time to listen to the show and all those who support it. We would especially like to thank our friends at HD and our friends at the Podcast Junkies Discord server. If you would like to support us, there are many ways to do so. You can share the show on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at Spy Stories Pod. You can join our Facebook group, Spy Stories Podcast Group. You can leave us a positive review on iTunes so it offsets some of the negative ones we're going to get from Karen's X for <laughs> Escape thing or People whatever really platform like you lose. <laughs> you can also become a Patreon supporter. As many books as Karen buys for this show, it will be greatly appreciated. <laughs> I do go through, I do buy a lot of books. You do. We would also like to send a special thank you to our patrons, Ruck, Sarah, John, C, Jessica M. And we would really like to thank Kara for all the support she's shown to the show. The life of Cluddy Hutton reminds us to pay attention to those who have gone before us and to learn from the greats, but still keep a fresh enough mindset to make what is great even better. He reminds us to think creatively, to challenge ourselves to come up with something new and then see if we can improve upon that. He lives out a line from one of my favorite movies, Disney's Meet the Robinsons. Keep moving forward. And just like Harriet the Spy says, life is hard, but a good spy gets in there and fights. And until next week, keep fighting. 